Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Around this time, every four years, policy experts and researchers start to think about a thought-provoking premise. What new directions could the federal government take if there were a change in administration? One area that Urban is thinking about is the role the feds might play in better ensuring that all families are able to live in neighborhoods that support their well-being and their children's ability to thrive. On today's episode, we're going to discuss two ideas that could help all neighborhoods become places of opportunity and inclusion. First up, we're going to talk about ending exclusionary zoning. And I have to be honest, whenever I think about zoning and city planning, like the first thing that comes to mind is SimCity. I know I'm dating myself here, but do y'all remember that game from the 1990s and 2000s? SimCity is a game about endless choices. Ultimately, you can do whatever you want. You can focus on growing your population, increasing your wealth, and even building a city that looks like your hometown. Whatever your motivation, you have the power to experiment with a number of different strategies. SimCity let players create and build a city exactly to their specifications, largely through zoning. So it's clearly a powerful tool in the game and in reality, but one that I think a lot of us don't really understand. Zoning is just a set of local regulations and processes that determine what can be built and where. That's Solomon Green, senior fellow here at the Urban Institute, who wrote a paper on this topic. So virtually every community in the country, every city and county, um, has a local zoning code that includes rules about what types of buildings can be built and the shape and form of those buildings. They often also include complex rules for review and approvals and other requirements like how much parking must be provided for each housing unit or how much land must be set aside for green space. And here is Ingrid Gould-Ellen, professor of urban policy and planning at New York University and Solomon's co-author with an even simpler explanation. Most narrowly, zoning is really about what can be built on a plot of land and what activities can take place on that land. In general, localities set the ground rules on zoning, and those rules are really important. Zoning matters a lot. It shapes communities where we live, but it also shapes how housing jobs, services, and other physical amenities are allocated across neighborhoods within a city and a region. So think about all the things in your community in the built environment, homes, the gas station, uh, the shops you go to, even how you know much sidewalk there is separating pedestrians from traffic. All of those things are typically determined through the zone code, where different uses can be located, and the physical form of the neighborhoods we live in. So obviously zoning affects how much our housing costs, but it also impacts other things you might not think of right away. For example, how far we drive our cars to work, which contributes to carbon emissions, or how our national economy works in terms of who can live in certain areas to take certain jobs, or the diversity of our community and the people and information we interact with in our day-to-day lives. These small zoning decisions can result in big disparities. I think that um, why we should care is because these sort of, you know, minor local policies actually collectively can add up to have a really significant impact on society, on residential patterns and on affordability, on economic growth even. And, you know, sort of indirectly and in combination, they can have they can have powerful effects. As you might imagine, zoning has a long and complicated history in our country. 
and lots of states and local governments have made it a priority to zone out and exclude housing that's affordable and accessible to folks with lower incomes. So many communities have fiscal incentives to zone out multifamily housing and any housing that has public subsidies to make the units more affordable to lower income individuals and working families. And the reason for this is that some municipalities are eager to attract and and keep land uses that generate more in taxes than they consume in services. So if local governments are just trying to maximize essentially their profit or public revenue, they're going to want to attract uses that generate a lot in taxes, but they don't have to spend a lot to support. So this can be favoring commercial centers that boost uh, sales tax revenue, or it could be large single-family homes that are built on even larger lots which are only affordable to wealthier households. So there is this idea, again contested, that uh, municipalities and counties, you know, are really strategically zoning to attract either wealthier individuals who may pay more in taxes than uh, their kids consume in in schools, or businesses that are going to attract more sales taxes than they're going to use in public infrastructure or, you know, other costs. Maybe that idea has some face validity, but when you dig a little deeper, these policies, they're largely rooted in racism. Since the early 20th century, zoning has been used to create and reinforce racial segregation. In fact, early zoning laws explicitly segregated neighborhoods by race. You know, historically, zoning laws were enacted explicitly to exclude Black people and and, uh, lower-income families from, from neighborhoods and jurisdictions. Baltimore pioneered racial zoning, I I think, in 1910, and they uh, enacted a zoning ordinance that basically prohibited Black households from buying homes in predominantly white areas and prohibited white households from buying homes in predominantly Black areas. And, and, And many jurisdictions then followed Baltimore's lead. Eventually, some of these practices were outlawed, but they were not abandoned in practice. And the Supreme Court struck down those um, sort of explicitly racial zoning ordinances in, in 1917. But local governments, then what did they do? They they basically turned to zoning restrictions that were less overtly racist, like large lot zoning and restrictions on multifamily housing, but that still had the same exclusionary effect. We have federal civil rights statutes that ban explicitly racist zoning laws, but many local governments have turned to subtler methods, namely zoning out multifamily and affordable housing. So when you really dig into the arguments that zoning out affordable housing preserves community character or protects property values, they're based on this history of racism and classism. We know, and there's ample research showing that affordable housing, whether it is just simply multifamily housing or whether it is housing with a subsidy, doesn't bring down surrounding property values. And there's very little evidence to suggest that community character is harmed, particularly when we're talking about multifamily housing that is simply a a duplex or a triplex coming into a single-family neighborhood, which is often what the upzoning debate is about. Rarely do you see in a single-family neighborhood, you know, proposal for a radically different scale of housing being built. It's often what we call gradual density. And 
So, you know, these terms, you know, pre- protecting property values, preserving community character, you know, are, you know, you, you have to kind of dig deeper and say, what are you really saying when those are the, your justification for excluding housing that is available for people of diverse incomes and backgrounds? In fact, Solomon has a quick interactive game for you. This is where sort of a fun game comes in, is we know from recent recent research that whiter, wealthier, and older homeowners, they really exert outsized influence on local zoning decisions. I would encourage your listeners to type zoning board community meeting in a Google image search and see what pops up and ask yourself, are these images, the ones you see uh, coming up from that search, reflective of the diversity in your community or the diversity in our country. Now, it's important to remember that not all zoning policy is intentionally racist or exclusionary, but it can still have that impact. I I don't want us to come across as sort of we're just asserting that kind of all all zoning, everyone who enacts, every, every local government or planning official is racist, right? It's not, it's, um, I mean, sometimes there are, there can be well-intentioned policies that lead to serious ex- exclusion. And even if a policy does not have, a zoning ordinance does not have an explicitly exclusionary intent, it, it still can have a powerful exclusionary effect. Ingrid and Solomon think reforming our zoning is extremely important right now for two reasons. One is that we are in the midst of a a rental housing affordability crisis, and we need to figure out ways to to build more housing and to build more housing without years and decades of delays. And I think to do so, we need to tackle the exclusionary zoning and land use regulations, regulatory barriers that, that block that housing. Secondly, I think that the racial reckoning that we have had over the past few months also points to the continued barriers to to fair housing and to to integration in this country. And And I think we need to come up with ways at sort of higher levels of government to to address those barriers. In general, the federal government has been pretty hands-off when it comes to zoning, letting states and localities run the show and set the pace. But here's a question. Can the federal government do more here? Solomon and Ingrid think yes. Our idea, our suggested approach is the federal government could be a better partner with states and incentivizing them to adopt effective reforms. Basically, we propose that the federal government condition competitive funding for housing, transportation, infrastructure to states on their setting regional housing goals and goals for equitably distributing affordable housing and then making measurable progress towards those goals. Ingrid and Solomon think there are a number of reasons the federal government working through states is a powerful way to reform zoning in our country for the better. First of all, states rely more heavily on federal funding than than local governments do. So I think about 31 percent of state Revenue comes from the federal government, where it's only 5% of local government revenue. Exclusionary suburbs rarely receive direct federal funding. So the extent that you really care about affecting the the zoning ordinances in the most exclusionary suburbs, if, if, you know, if you're going at the local level, those, those communities might just say, just, that's okay. We just won't take the, we won't take the federal funding. So, and, and it's also just easier, I think, for the federal government to monitor the actions and the proposals of 50 states rather than a whole, a large number of localities. 
Another reason why this approach could work is because the federal government supports states in a lot of different ways, which they could use to influence how states set policy. So the federal government provides a lot more funding to states for, for transportation and infrastructure than, than it does for housing. So there's just that much more leverage. And third, we focus not only on production numbers, but we also focus on, the, on an equitable distribution of affordable housing. And this is important because if you just if you just require that states meet some, you know, ensure that that local governments sort of meet some production goals, well, then basically that could lead to concentrated development in in lower income communities because those communities are, are typically less effective in blocking politically effective in blocking development. So these are things that the federal government could do. What might be some of the barriers to implementation? I mean, honestly, it's like politics, politics, and politics. It's just, it, it really, it's about political will. Residents like zoning, right? And basically lo- local governments want to please their residents. They want to please their voters. They want to please homeowners in particular in their jurisdictions who tend to vote more often. Residents, people may object to any perceived interventions from higher levels of government that restrict their right to dictate what their community looks like. But improving zoning could really create more opportunity for all. These restricting zoning laws um, really sustain racial and economic segregation. They put higher income and whiter neighborhoods even further out of the reach of low and moderate income home seekers who we know are more likely to be people of color. And segregation imposes broader social costs. It feeds racial and economic divisions. It inhibits social interaction and the flow of information. We've actually found it actually polarizes political life, that if we lived in more racially and economically integrated neighborhoods, the social fabric would actually be a lot stronger. So that was idea number one. The next idea for what the federal government can do to support opportunity focuses on housing and specifically the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Urban Institute researcher Martha Galvez and Sarah Oppenheimer at Opportunity Insights have been thinking about how we might improve that program to get better outcomes. But let's start with the basics. What is it? So the Housing Choice Voucher Program, and people refer to it as Section 8, is the nation's largest direct rental assistance program. And vouchers, as as is in the name, are provided to low-income families, usually folks who are among the lowest-income people in their communities, to find housing on the private market. So they go out, they find landlords that will accept the vouchers. When they find a unit, they will pay a portion of the rent and the voucher pays the remainder. So usually households will pay about 30% of their income in rent and then the housing authority, and they'll pay that money directly to a landlord. The housing authority then pays the rest or the voucher covers the rest and payments go directly to landlords every month. This program helps shoulder some burdensome housing costs so families can cover other expenses or afford a move to a different neighborhood. The idea is they're paying a reasonable amount of their income in rent and they can have money for things like food or healthcare or childcare or other basic needs. And also that they can use their voucher to move to a, a wider range of places, that more housing will be available to them, more neighborhoods will be available to them. Here's Sarah Oppenheimer. The voucher program is really trying to ensure that families have stable housing, have high quality housing, have housing in neighborhoods that are of their choosing. And hopefully that can also free up resources for those families to put into education, to put into health, to put into all these other areas that we know are really important for families' health and wellness. 
I asked Martha what the evidence shows about how these vouchers improve equity in America. Some of the findings that have gotten the most attention in recent years are around experiments that gave people vouchers to move from very high poverty neighborhoods or public housing neighborhoods to lower poverty neighborhoods that, you know, we believe have, we call them, you know, high opportunity areas or opportunity rich areas or opportunity neighborhoods that we think offer people access to amenities, whether it's school or other things that uh, help them improve outcomes down the line. So that research has found that kids in particular that move from very high poverty neighborhoods to lower poverty neighborhoods see employment and income and health gains over their lifetime down the road. So just how big is this program? About 2.3 million households currently use vouchers. I think about 4 million people nationwide. And it's mainly in metropolitan areas, but also, you know, suburban areas, um, like exurban areas, rural is, is, is covered by other types of housing assistance, typically. And it's run by a network of local housing authorities. So the money comes from Congress every year. It goes through the U.S. Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development and is dispersed to a network of something like 3,000 local housing authorities. And some of them, the biggest ones in L.A. or New York, might have you know tens of thousands, 100,000 families, that they're, vouchers that they're dealing with, and also run big public housing programs in parallel to voucher programs. But it's important to note that this program is not an entitlement program. In practice, this means that not everyone who is eligible to receive a voucher gets one. In fact, it's not even close. For the most part, it's very, very hard to get a voucher. This is literally winning the lottery. Only a fraction of the people who are eligible for assistance can actually get it because of you know budget constraints. There isn't enough funding to provide to everyone who is eligible for it. And people who do get assistance will wait for it on waiting lists for a long time. Sarah worked with the Housing Choice Voucher Program in the Seattle area. She said the wait list there was overwhelmed. Families are waiting years, um, not months, but, you know, two, three, four years before they come to the top of that wait list. Some sites like King County just open their wait list at specific times so that the wait list doesn't get so long that it's really untenable for the housing authority to manage or for families to even wrap their head around, you know, this is an eight year wait list. And even if people do win the lottery and get a voucher, it can be really challenging to successfully use it to move to a different home. You wait and wait, and then you get to the top of the wait list and you're deemed eligible to receive a voucher. And I think in many families' heads, that's really akin to winning winning the lottery, you know, getting the golden ticket. You now have some help that you've needed for presumably quite a long time. And then we see that it's really challenging to actually use the voucher. And obviously that varies a bit by market and by, by community and by families' individual needs. But oftentimes the program we're seeing is, is much more complicated than, than we would like it to be, right? And anytime that a voucher is issued and families aren't able to use it, that's not a success for anyone, not for the family, not for the housing authority, not for potential landlords. So how is it challenging to actually use this voucher? Sarah says it has to do with information overload and complex bureaucratic processes. I think some of the barriers that we really see are, one, just the, the complexities that are related to using the voucher. So how information is conveyed around where a voucher can be used, what the different limits are, limitations are around how much the voucher can cover. I think that 
those things can all be very, very complicated. And especially if it's of a family that is using a voucher for the first time or even looking for housing in the private market for the first time, elements of how the voucher should be used to landlords, that can be a heavy lift and sometimes can be very daunting, if not just impossible to do. And it's a heavy lift under a tight deadline. So once a family comes to the top of the wait list and receives a voucher, the clock starts ticking. And so they don't have a lot of lead time once they've gotten the voucher to then say, oh, okay, I have all my ducks in a row. I have my paperwork and I know exactly which communities I'm ready to search in. And so that timeline can oftentimes, I think, push families towards making decisions around which communities they're searching in, kind of choosing the path of least resistance in the case that, that their voucher doesn't expire altogether. And the reality is landlords often just don't accept vouchers. Voucher holders are always up against the competition from anyone who's looking for a unit that doesn't have a voucher, right? And I think from landlords' perspectives, that can sometimes come across as just a just a, an easier path, not having to deal with both the tenant and the housing authority, not having to wrap their head around, well, what does this really mean? What are the additional layers of bureaucracy that may come to uh, renting to someone who has a voucher? Landlords may just opt to go with a different tenant who doesn't have a voucher because it seems easier. So how can we improve the voucher program so that families have real choice? For starters, Housing authorities can work to ease up on the administrative barriers that make the program hard to participate in, both for families and for landlords. I think pretty simple, some pretty simple um, initiatives like what information is communicated to families at a briefing, which is the meeting when families are receiving their voucher. How can we make sure that that information is not putting really, really text heavy information up on a slide and assuming that families give it, get, get, get what that information is trying to communicate? Or how do we not give families a really dense stack of paperwork and feel like that's done its job in terms of explaining how to use the voucher? But rather taking families step by step around what do these forms mean? On the landlord side, there are steps that housing authorities can take to make sure that the voucher program is more appealing. You know, I think some steps are making sure the agency is set up for landlords to have single points of communication with someone at the housing authority, that when a landlord has a need, they know exactly who to get in touch with, that they feel like this is someone who is responsive to them, that they don't have to go through a very convoluted phone tree in order to reach someone. So simplifying how unit inspection procedures go, making them more predictable, making them faster, which is one of the biggest things that you hear from landlords about why they avoid working with housing authorities and voucher programs. It really needs to be relatively easy for landlords to work with housing authorities. And in many places, at least to the landlord's perception, it is not. Third, housing authorities can make funding more flexible. They're pretty restricted on what they can spend funding on at the moment. So allowing them to spend their funds in a little bit of a more flexible way, particularly in current times with uh, coronavirus and people coming out of this period of where of potentially owing back rent, for example, allowing voucher program funds to be used to pay rent arrears. Currently, that's that's not possible. And fourth, we can better align housing vouchers with the cost of rent in particular neighborhoods. We know that in some places, the voucher rent limits or the payment standards, they're called the maximum rent that a voucher can be used towards, 
is doesn't match the rent levels in some neighborhoods that you would hope that people would also be able to have access to. So shifting how those rent levels for vouchers, the payment standards are calculated from being calculated on a big area that kind of makes it hard to target neighborhoods to make sure that vouchers hit the rent levels in certain neighborhoods, switching how those are calculated from big areas to small areas. So creating neighborhood opportunity for all is incredibly important, especially right now. In closing, Sarah thinks housing support will matter more now than ever. I think we are now coming into a period where the housing need is even greater and it was immense before. And so I think that means that every dollar that is going towards programs like the voucher program, which we know are really effective for families, like we know that there is perhaps no greater intervention in terms of preventing homelessness and trauma and all these things that come with it than providing families with housing. We are now in a space where that need is just going to grow. And so every dollar that goes into the voucher program, we need to make sure it's being used really, really well and that it's working for families and it's being done as efficiently, but also as impactfully as possible. So that's our show. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, Zoning shapes the communities where we live and how jobs, services, and other amenities are allocated across neighborhoods within a city and a region. And it's important to remember zoning has a long and complicated history in our country of being used to create and reinforce racial segregation. Two, zoning is usually a state and local issue, but one new proposal to think about says the federal government could improve equity in our country by partnering with states and incentivizing them to adopt zoning reforms. And three, the Housing Choice Voucher Program presents a chance for families to move to new neighborhoods and to improve the opportunities available to them. But the program could benefit from a refresh by removing administrative barriers that make the program hard to participate in, both for families and for landlords. So that's our show. Big thank you to urban researchers Martha Galvez and Solomon Green, as well as Ingrid Gould-Ellen of NYU and Sarah Oppenheimer at Opportunity Insights. To read their work, go to our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. Big thank you to producers Katie Smith and Jacinth Jones and to our sound editor Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. And thank you, listener, for your support. Please hit us up with a rating on iTunes or even leave a review there. We really appreciate the feedback. And if you have a minute, tell your friends and family about this podcast. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and on behalf of my two kids that continue to be co-producers. I hope you liked listening to this podcast because I did too. And it was 100% good. Bye-bye.